as a continuation, we're going to keep going with this series that's called This Should Be a Movie, and it's going to be in the book of Joshua today, in Joshua chapter 2. And, and this morning, we're going to look at a story of Rahab and the spies, and I've just entitled it A Simple and Productive Faith. And, you know, one of the things about faith, oftentimes we, we make such an emphasis on faith and by doing so, we de-emphasize the object of our faith. And so I, I hesitate to even qualify faith in any way. But what we're going to see today is a very simple faith of a woman who, who was a Gentile, who really didn't even have, if you will, direct revelation from God. But the, the revelation that she had, she responded to. And in that sense, she's a great example of how we are to live by faith and how we are to walk by faith. But even more importantly, if you've never been born again, how you should respond to the gospel by faith. That the fact that God doesn't want anybody to go to hell and, that, and the fact that the, the penalty for our sin was death, but that Jesus came so that you wouldn't have to face that penalty yourself and that God rose him from the dead to convince you that what Jesus did for you was enough and that he accepted his sacrifice in your place so that you would never have to face that death penalty. And God is is commanding men everywhere to change their mind about what they think it takes to get to heaven and to put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. God accomplished something 2,000 years ago for each one of us that he simply wants you to trust in for eternal life. And we're going to see today this illustration of, of a simple faith illustrated by Rahab. Before we do so, I want to look a little bit at the history that led up to this. You know, the nation of Israel, we know from history, was in bondage to the Egyptians for a little over 400 years before God raised up a deliverer named Moses and then delivered them, utilizing 10 plagues to deliver them from this, this incredible, incredibly strong empire. God did all of this. God desired immediately to instruct his people in, in his law. And then he was going to immediately take them into the promised land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But initially he had promised to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant this land for his family, for his nation that he would develop out of this family. And God wanted to take this people that he had just delivered from Egypt immediately into the promised land. Once he provided them with his law, he was going to take them into the promised land. And we remember that Moses sent out spies. He sent out 12 spies into the promised land to view the land, to view the cities, to view the different ways they were fortified and et cetera. And we know from the story in Numbers that 10 of the spies returned a negative report. They said, well, Moses, the, the land is exactly as advertised, but the cities are too fortified. We can't defeat these people. And, and on top of that, they've got giants in the land. Let, let's just not go into the land, Moses. This is going to be too difficult. And these 10 spies discouraged the entire nation. And the nation said, no, we don't want to go up. We don't want to go into the promised land. Let's just stay out here. And two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, Joshua, which we'll see briefly in the story today, said, no, let's go get it. The land's ours. God's given it to us. Let's go by faith regardless of what we see, and let's take this land. But unfortunately, the group won out. And as a result, the nation of Israel wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years so that that unbelieving generation could die out before God then took the next generation into the land. 
And so that leads us into our story this morning. Moses died in the wilderness with the unbelieving generation. Joshua was appointed Israel's new leader. And now they are getting set up on the east side of the Jordan River to begin that conquest. And we find that in Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua says this in verse 1, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And so we see that Joshua sent these two men out secretly as spies from Acacia Grove. And there's a couple things I want to just point out as it relates to this portion of the story. Notice the contrast. Joshua only sends two spies here. Moses had sent 12 back in Numbers 13. And we realized that that didn't work out very well. And it was almost maybe the number involved. Because once somebody starts spewing negativity, it oftentimes other people pick up on it and begin to repeat it. And so Joshua now limits the spies to two. And, and probably one other reason is, is they were now encamped on the east side of the Jordan. We're going to see that even the officials in Jericho knew something was up. And so had Joshua sent in more than those two men, it may not have been as discreet as he wanted it to be. And secondly, uh, the point I just made is he did so secretly. Now, it's really interesting. Who is he keeping it a secret from? Well, well, clearly he was keeping it a secret from or trying to keep it a secret from the Canaanites or the, the people in Jericho. But I believe he might have also been trying to keep it a secret from the people. Because if these two men had gone into the land and brought back a negative report, again, you know, Joshua had been a part of that original spy team. And he saw how, how this report had turned the entire congregation and made them fearful and caused them not to believe God's word in, in terms of giving them the land. And so Joshua may have even didn't want this, this group mob mentality. So he sends these two secretly in case they come back a negative report, he can just move forward without them. We don't know, but he sends both of them in secretly, the text says. And then we see that he sends them from Acacia Grove. Now, this doesn't mean anything to us until we look at a map. And what we find out is that they were on the east side of the Jordan River. To get to Jericho, they had to cross the Jordan River, which was on the west side. Very important because it tells us that these two spies had to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. And that may not sound like much, you know, well, if you can swim, that's not a big deal. But the point is, during this time, this flood stage water, the snow from Mount Hermon would melt And it would get the river to a a width of almost 360 feet, you know, over three football fields. It would be very deep and dangerous. The current would be very dangerous. And even in this day, many people who ever swam the Jordan at flood stage were considered heroes or somebody that achieved a heroic feat of strength and endurance. And so these two men risked their lives to go spy out Jericho. And so that puts it into perspective what Joshua was asking them to do. The other thing we see is Joshua's instruction, they were to view the land, the entire promised land, but with an emphasis on Jericho, because that's where the conquest was going to start. But what we're going to see is they only view Jericho, and they only view part of the hill country, and then they come home. In fact, their trip only lasts three days, three of which we're going to find most of the three uh, are spent hiding in the hill country on their way home. 
it begs the question, why didn't they view the whole promised land? And I'm gonna make the point or make the argument that the reason they didn't is because they heard enough in Jericho to know that land was theirs, that God was going to give them that land. They were convinced and confident in their God. And there's a strategic lodging here. It's an interesting phraseology. Again, the Bible doesn't shy away from bumps and warts and and hairy moles, uh, so to speak, in people's lives. It just brings it straight. And what we find out is that these spies actually lodged at the house of a prostitute, a harlot, the text tells us, named Rahab. Now, how they got there uh, or how they ended up there, we don't know. There's probably lots of speculation that can be made on that, but the text doesn't actually say. And what I'm going to propose is that God was their travel agent. That's how they ended up there. God was the one who put this together. The spies may not have been aware, but God had made a reservation for them at Rahab's house. And we're going to see that as we go through the story. This was a divine appointment. This was God's plan. This is what God had determined to do. Obviously, God in his providence led them there for a couple reasons. We're going to see through the story. Number one, he's going to give the spies an inside scoop. Now, this is very important because what she's going to share with them is how the Canaanites viewed the Israelites. We already know from history, and and by the time we get to this point in the Bible, as we've read through the Pentateuch, we already know how the Israelites felt about the Canaanites. They were scared of them. They were frightened by them. They were melted away by them. This, this is all things that we have recorded. This is why they rejected the opportunity to go into the promised land 40 years earlier. But what we don't know until we get to Joshua 2, Joshua 2 is how did the Canaanites feel about the Israelites? And let's just take a sneak peek in verses 9 through 11 because this is really going to be the basis or context for everything that we're looking at this morning. Joshua 2, 9 through 11, kind of sneaking ahead in the story. Rahab said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This preview of how the Canaanites felt about the Israelites would have been a strong encouragement to these spies. And it may have been the reason once they heard this and once Rahab set them loose, we're going to see, they might have said, you know what? We don't need to see any more. That land is ours. We got this. Let's just go home and let's start this thing. Very apropos in how God led them to this person's house that would share this information with them. You know, I think another reason that God brought these spies to Rahab's house is this is going to be an example of God showing grace to an undeserving, sinful Gentile woman who was facing impending judgment. There was nothing that Rahab had done or achieved in her life in terms of righteousness that would warrant her from being delivered from the impending destruction. And yet because she believed in God and she trusted the Lord and that faith produced this action of protecting the spies, we're going to see the story is going to tell us she's going to be spared. As we go further in history, what we see is that Rahab actually ends up in the lineage of the Jewish Messiah. Just incredible 
things that come out of the story that we're looking at today. You know, another reason may have been that the location of the house was in such a strategic position, it it ended up facilitating their escape. Could you imagine if the men had been lodged at an inn right in the center of town, and then they're trying to get out of town, they're trying to get into town and out of town unnoticed or secretly, they would be much more given away. So to be able to, to stay at a place right on the city wall, right on the edge of town, and be able to be delivered, and we'll see how that how that happens here through the story. There's an investigation, verse two. It was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house for they have come to search out all the country. And so somehow the king had found out about these men. They brought some kind of notice Obviously, with what Rahab shared in verses 9 through 11, which we said he was probably frightened, they, somehow they knew that the Israelites were camped where they were. And, and a lot of what we see in this time frame is, is many invading armies would actually end up sending spies in first to kind of scope out the land, scope out the fortifications, how they might attack, come back, report it to the general, and then they would devise a plan of attack. And so the king was probably thinking, well, these guys are just coming in because they're getting ready to attack us. And so we're going to take these spies so they can't take back information. He's very concerned with the safety of his people. One of the things that is fascinating because of of culture and, and oriental custom of this day was that women the privacy of a woman was respected. And so oftentimes they would refrain from bursting into a woman's home and searching it out of respect for her. And so this, this actually played to the advantage of lodging again with Rahab. And so we can see this strategic lodging that God put together for them. But one of the things we find again, as we talk about in the word of God, there's, there's no hiding of faults of our heroes or our heroines. And what we're going to see in verses four through seven is Rahab issues a bold-faced lie to the king. And she does that in order to protect the spies. Look at verse four. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, although her heart was in the right place, she wanted to save the spies, Rahab's actions were still wrong. She, she had sinned. It's never right to lie. That's, it's never okay. We get into these situational ethics where we think, well, that was okay because I was actually doing something good by lying. No, and this is one of the things in the story where, you know, we're going to commend Rahab's faith in a second. This is a deficiency in her faith because if God wanted to, he could have delivered the spies another way. Now, I'm not saying she had to go out of her way and announce to the city that she was hiding Israelite spies, but in terms of posed with a direct question, She could have told the truth and God may have, there may have been another little wrinkle to this story watching God deliver these spies. We don't want to condone lying. And that's what I I love about the Bible. It's, It's great in that way because it always records the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, who would imagine that the man that's called 
the man after God's own heart was an adulterer, was a murderer, didn't do a good job of raising his children, ran when his son was trying to overtake the kingdom. The, the man who was called a friend of God, Abraham, had pawned his wife off to a couple of different king's harems and had, had bought into her strategy to have a child without the Lord's miraculous intervention. There's, there's all sorts of things that our heroes and heroines do, and the Bible records it as fact. It's great news for you and I because if we're honest, we our lives can resemble train wrecks sometimes. In fact, it, with the decisions that we make oftentimes on a weekly basis, it's no wonder that many of us have said, man, can God ever use me? Well, if God can use Abraham, if God can use David, if God can use anybody, even Rahab here, lying to protect the spies, her heart in the right place, but still doing it in a simple way, God can use you. And that's one of the encouragements that we derive from the scriptures. The other thing that's really cool about this is it shows us that even though God does not condone sin, that God is still in the business of working all things together for our good, even our bad choices. And so even though this was wrong, this probably helped to convince the spies that Rahab's belief in their God was genuine. And it was clear evidence possibly to them that she was trying to protect them and not harm them, that she was risking great personal harm to herself to save them. And so it might've been even something God used for good, even though it was sinful, to convince these spies so that they would go back and give a good report to the people, which is what they needed at this point in the nation's history. Again, not to condone sin, but to say, you know what? God is bigger than that. He can use all things and work them all together for our good. It's really ironic because all of this was going on downstairs and upstairs in verse eight, it looked like the guys were, were just getting ready to hit the hay. They're just, it sounds like they were getting ready to go to sleep. They were planning on spending the night there. They really didn't know probably the level or the imminent danger that they faced having not known exactly what had transpired downstairs. But this is where Rahab comes in to speak with them. And in verse nine, we read this. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. And so she is going to instruct the spies now. She's going to give them some behind-the-scenes statements revealing their, their mental state, not only recently, but dating back to 40 years when they originally came out of Egypt. She's going to go all the way back and said, this has been our mental state the entire time you've been wandering around in the wilderness. This is how we've all been thinking. What, what just great insight she's going to give them here, but also what, what conviction that the Israelite spies must have felt when they heard this Gentile woman express the things that she's about to express. And first thing she says is, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Rahab simply says she knows this. There's no doubt in her mind. She knows for a fact that their God has given them her land and her ancestors' land and the entire Canaanite promised land. How did she know this? Well, verse 10 is going to tell us how. She heard these stories. She 
heard stories about Israel and their God. Maybe, maybe people passing through Jericho, maybe people lodging at her place. She provided lodging for people. Maybe people had shared stories they had heard. Maybe news had traveled. We, you know, oftentimes news traveled by foot and people would tell stories and and describe what they had seen or what they had heard. And, and so Rahab, having worked, uh, obviously, and owned a brothel in a, in a lodging place, may have gotten those stories communicated to her. She, she had heard. She had heard about the Israelites' God. Now, notice also what's, what's really ironic is the stuff that she communicates. And it's really subtle. You don't typically pick that up unless one of the things you can pick up in the Old Testament is anytime the word Lord is in all capital, that's the, the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's the special, unique, covenant-keeping name of God that God uses oftentimes with his nation. And yet here's a Gentile woman and she uses the name Yahweh. She doesn't use the generic name Elohim that you would use for any of the plethora of gods that people had it. Every nation in that day felt like they had certain gods that were on their side. And, and oftentimes they felt like, well, if my God's bigger than your God, then we're gonna beat you. And if my God's stronger than your God on land, then we're gonna try to fight you on land. But if my God's stronger than your God on water, then we'll try to fight you on water. And they, they made these decisions based on their quote unquote gods, their plethora of gods. Rahab doesn't say that. She doesn't say you're, your God, your small G God that's over your nation. No, she says Yahweh. Verse nine again, she says, I know that the Lord, the Yahweh, the one and only true God, your God has given you the land. And so she knew a lot. So even though she had not received what we would say direct revelation from God as the Israelites had through Moses, she still believed the promise to Abraham regarding the Canaanite land. I don't know where she heard it. I don't know where she got it, but the point is this. When she heard it, she believed it. She simply responded to truth by faith. And see, this is what makes Rahab's response of faith. Just, just such a great example for us. She heard truth. She believed truth. Regardless of any information or any appearance to the contrary, she took the truth about Yahweh seriously. She said, this is the real deal. He's who I'm putting my hope in. I believe that what he says he's gonna do, he indeed is gonna do it. I believe that what he says he's gonna do, he has the power to do it. All of these things factoring in to Rahab's response and why she is such a great example, even for us today. You know, the other things that she tells the Israelites in verse nine is she says, the terror of you has fallen on us. In fact, the emotional distress, if you will, caused by the Israelites' impending takeover was overwhelming to them. Somehow, somehow they had detected that Joshua had now positioned the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan, ready to cross and strike. And maybe the Canaanites even felt like, well, the Jordan's at flood stage. It'll probably be a little while. Maybe we can be prepared or whatever. But they knew that they were in place. And Rahab says they had emotional distress and it was overwhelming to them to know this truth. Third, she says, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. And this is interesting because she doesn't just say some of the inhabitants of the land, but she says 
Notice the word, all of the inhabitants of the land have melted away. And, and when she says all, we'll just take her at face value, that that's all, that that's the majority that she's referring to. And you'd say, even the giants? Remember 40 years earlier, they were like, oh, there's giants there. We better not do that. And Rahab all insinuates, yes, even the giants, even those who are strong, even fortified cities. Jericho was known as having an extremely fortified city, very hard to defeat for any opposing army. And yet they were all in their hearts melting away. You could say that they were using a modern term. They were shaking in their boots, waiting for this impending destruction. And and the cities were getting ready to go down and they knew it and they were scared and they were shaking in their boots. Melted away literally means to go from a solid to a liquid state with a focus that this state cannot resist force or power exerted upon it. Figuratively, it means they were demoralized. And you know, when you think about it, imagine how this knowledge and this feeling would affect even your daily decisions. Would you build your dream house in Jericho if you believe this? Well, no. Why not? Because the Israelites are coming. We don't know when they're coming, but they're coming to destroy it. So why would I build my dream house? Would you invest more in your 401k or your retirement plan? No, because the Israelites are coming. Would you work hard in school to secure a good job? No, because who cares if destruction's coming? I mean, think about if we knew that America would be destroyed within uh, the next few years. How would that change or impact the decisions that we'd make? Well, I know for me, I'd probably move, right? I mean, we would, I would try, probably try to save my family and try to protect us and find somewhere else to go. But you can see that, that just living in that state of uh, perpetual fear would impact even the daily decisions that they would make. But here's what's really sad. Here's what's really tragic is because we just got the behind the scenes feeling for the Canaanites toward the Israelites. But you know what? What was the behind the scenes feelings of the Israelites toward the Canaanites? Well, we get a ton of information on that. The first five books of the Bible tell us all about that. Whereas Rahab said, we believe that the Lord has given you this land. What would the Israelites have said? We don't believe that the Lord has given us this land. We believe that the Canaanites are going to live in this land. That was their attitude when they rejected or when they accepted the 10 spies negative reports. We don't believe this land is ours. We can't take that land. God hasn't given us that land. And yet it's ironic because the Gentiles believe that their God had given them the land. And so you see this counteractive thinking by the Israelites as it relates to the Gentiles. In fact, the Israelites thought that their size and their, their fortified cities Those are the kind of things that cause them great terror and fear. And yet the Canaanites were were emotionally disturbed and fearful of them. And you see this, this contrast that when you take God's truth at face value, he's got the right perspective. And oftentimes we trust in our own self-reliant, self-serving, self-protective ideas over and above the truth of the word of God when he knows the whole picture. He knew how the Canaanites were feeling. In fact, he predicted it. We'll see that here in the Old Testament. In fact, they could have told the Canaanites, oh, your hearts melted because of us. Our hearts melted because of you. Our our hearts were melting away. We were being reduced to being demoralized. That's why we didn't come into the land 40 years ago when God wanted to 
us to come into the land. In fact, think about this. The Israelites, as they're wandering around in the wilderness, they could have been in that land, own that land 40 years earlier from the time Rahab is giving her report. Now, they could have been there, but they trusted their eyes. They trusted their senses. They trusted their own evaluation of their safety, and they did not trust the Lord. And this is why I say earlier, it was probably convicting to hear Rahab speech in, speak in such confident tones about how great their God was when they didn't even realize how great their God was. Isn't that a tragedy? And, and she goes on to tell them why she felt this way. She gives two examples in verse 10 of why she felt this way. Verse 10 says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And so she mentions two events. The first event happened 40 years earlier. This is all the way back in the, in the book of Exodus where they came out of Exodus. Pharaoh's army was chasing Moses and the people and, and the Lord split the Red Sea and they crossed over on dry ground. And as soon as they got through, the Egyptian army followed them and the waters caved back in and took out the entire Egyptian army. This is what Rahab and them had heard about. Now, even if you thought, I mean, it had happened over 40 years ago by this time, but, but assuming that news travels at a normal rate, they had still been aware of this story for probably 40 years. And what had they done since they heard that story? They were afraid of the Israelites. Their hearts were melting away. They knew they were coming for them. 40 years they had been shaking in their boots. And what had the Israelites been doing? Wandering around in circles because they didn't trust the word of God. Because they wanted to self-protect. And thus they were left and relegated to wandering in the wilderness when they could have been in the promised land, enjoying the promised land that God had given to them. And they did so because of unbelief. You know, one of the things that it means is that at the very time the 10 spies were giving a bad report to convince the nation, let's don't go into the promised land. At that same exact time, the Canaanites were already shaking in their boots. Doesn't that give us all a pause to trust ourselves? We, we don't have the whole story. We cannot protect ourselves. We cannot trust ourselves. We are not designed to walk by faith and be our own saviors. We've got somebody who's our savior. He wants to be that for you and me. He wants to be our life. He wants us to step out on faith and to rely upon him and his word over and above our experiences, our sight, what we smell, all of our senses. And that is how most of us live our lives, and quite frankly, we are wandering around in circles when God may have something much better in store for you. If you'll simply, and I will simply start trusting in the Lord and not leaning on my own understanding. And we see what the Israelites could have had. You know, it's interesting. She gives them a second reason. Again, something that she had heard, but this is a more recent history that she reflects on. And it's the, the slaughter 
of two kings on the east side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, but they had heard how they had utterly destroyed them. And this happened uh, probably within a, a couple of years of the time that she's speaking to the spies. And so there's something at the very beginning of their exodus from Egypt. And now there's something more recent to Rahab and the two spies days that she's referencing here. More recent history, again, is reflected here. So it is interesting, and I'll come to that in a second. It is interesting to note that Rahab only mentions two things. There were a lot more things that the Israelites that were aware of that their God had done for them, then Rahab was aware of. And yet she's the one who's responding by faith to the two things that she sees, knowing and trusting that their God is the God of gods. And a couple of the other things that the Israelites knew about that she didn't know about, at least she doesn't mention, is that manna had been provided for them every day from heaven since they had left Egypt. God had provided for their food needs. We also know from the scriptures that the soles of their sandal, the clothing that they wore, never wore out. No matter how far they walked and how many circles they went into and where they slept, their clothing didn't wear out in the wilderness. That was another proof that God was caring for them. What about the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle? What about tabernacle sacrificial worship? What about the law, understanding how much God cared for them, that even when they broke the law, he made provision for them to be restored to fellowship. What about the fact that God led them day and night by either a pillar of fire or a cloud? The way that their God cared for them and provided for them when they were short on water, he provided water. When they were short on food, he provided food. He did everything for them. See, Rahab didn't even know about all those things, but the Jews did, the Israelites did, and yet they still didn't trust the Lord. But Rahab over here, again, as a counter example, did trust the Lord. What's really interesting in terms of what Rahab was hearing, she was paying attention because she uses a word here that's really interesting. It's, it's the word that is translated utterly destroyed in verse 10, used of the kings, because it's a theological word. It's the Hebrew word harem. It means to devote to God to give a gift exclusively to God. But once you give it, it's gotta be destroyed so that no human can use it again. That's the word she uses here. A, a word that's used often through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it was as if she recognized that the physical destruction of those two kings and the future destruction of the land and the people within the land was an act of worship to Yahweh. It was destruction so that nobody else, no human could use it except God's purpose for that land and for that area. And so it's just interesting how much Rahab had been paying attention, the word choices she used. It would be like talking to somebody in a foreign land and them using the terms grace, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection. And your ears would perk up like, wow, who this person knows uh, some truth here. They've got a concept of truth or they start talking about salvation from the, the penalty of sin or salvation from the power of sin. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who is this person? Where did they come from? Where did they learn this? And so Rahab had been paying attention to everybody and the things that she had heard. This gives us additional insight. When did you start feeling this way? And look at verse 11. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. You see, 
when they started feeling this way, it says as soon as they heard it. As soon as they heard their stories, their hearts began to melt. They had no courage. Every man that she knew was scared about what was impending them. They had just been delivered from the most powerful empire on earth at the time, Egypt. What could they do with a little old city like Jericho? Wow, we're in big trouble, guys. As soon as we heard they're coming our way, we, our hearts melted. And the Canaanites recognized immediately, immediately, as soon as they heard that, that the Israelite God, Yahweh, was the real deal. Not like their plethora of pagan gods at all. In fact, Israel should have thought this way too because God had predicted it. Let me just read a couple of verses leading up to this time. In fact, the first one I wanna read is from Exodus 15. This is right after their deliverance uh, in the Red Sea. This is Moses' song and, he, and, it sa- and it says this in verse 15, Exodus 15, 15 through 17. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, look at the, the words I'm highlighting, trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Heard that before? That's exactly how Rahab described it. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which, is, which your hands have established. Look at Exodus 23, 27. I will send, this is immediately following the giving of the law or, or in that section. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Now, this is all before the bad spies come back. So God is already telling them, hey, I'm gonna plant fear in their hearts. I'm gonna melt them away. They're not gonna be any match for you. They're gonna be scared of you and you're gonna go in and take this land. I've already taken care of that side of the equation. You'll be fine. We know the response, they didn't do it. And so in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, after that unbelieving generation was getting ready to die out in the wilderness, as God is prepping his people now to go into the promised land after 40 years of wandering. Notice what he says in Deuteronomy 2, 25. This day, I will begin to put dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Now, what day is he talking about? As you go on in Deuteronomy there from that verse, you're gonna see that that now records the story of the destruction of Sihon and Ah. God knew what it would take to get these Canaanites melting away in their hearts. And so he says, this day, I'm gonna begin to put their, the dread and fear of you in them in the nations under the heavens. They're going to hear the report and they'll tremble and be in anguish because of you. And then finally, one more verse, Deuteronomy eleven twenty five: no man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. The Israelites should have known. They should have just trusted God's word that God was going to take care of that part of the equation and take care of their enemies, even from a mental, emotional, inward state that they would be afraid to even deal with the Israelites, but they did not believe God's word. Rahab goes on to give a further basis why they thought this way. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. In fact, to do the things that their God was doing, the Israelites had to have had 
the one true God. And because of this now, she moves into verse 12 and she begins to beg for mercy for her family because she knows that God is gonna give them the land and he's gonna do it through conquest. In verse 12, now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. She knows that her only way out is to beg for mercy. She begs for mercy and the spies grant it to her. But they put one condition on at this point. They're gonna add some conditions here later. But she says, hey, as they say, as long as you don't tell your family, as long as you don't, or I'm sorry, as long as you don't tell others, you and your family don't tell others, rat us out, give away our plan, then we'll spare you. Rahab knows at that point she's got to get them out of there. And so in verse 15, she let them down by a rope through the window. Again, remember her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall and she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days and until the pursuers have returned, afterward you may go your way. They didn't stay for the night, but they immediately left for safety. Rahab encouraged that, lowered them to safety. Not only that, she knew the, the city security. She knew the typical protocol. And so she told the spies exactly where to go, how long to hide so they could get safely home. It's also interesting to note that Rahab's house was on the wall because we know that the destruction of Jericho, what happens? Well, they march around the city and the walls come falling down. So how would Rahab be safe if her house was built into the wall? Well, because we know of archaeology and what they've been able to find in the city of, of Jericho, they had a, a two-wall structure oftentimes where her house was probably built in what they would call a casemate wall, which was accessible from inside and outside the city. In other words, it had a space, a small space. You can see the picture there. A small space maybe by the edge of her house up against the city wall. And so you can see how they might leave out that window over the city wall because although there's a space to walk in, they could do that clandestinely from there. It's just a great setup. Again, we see God's providence in leading them there. But notice as they are going out the window, the, the men give a couple of extra conditions. And it's not like old Columbo of old. It's not just one more thing. They, they had three more things. And what do they add? Well, verses 17 going forward says, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. If you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your word, so be it. She sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. And so what were the extra three things? Well, first, she needed to mark her house with a scarlet cord in the window. And just think about that. In the midst of this battle, how would all of the Israelite soldiers know which house it was? Well, she needed to mark it clearly. And so it's really ironic because, again, showing her faith in verse 21, what does she do immediately after she lets him down? She just puts the scarlet cord in the window and leaves it there. And she's ready for him to come back because, again, she believes that the Lord has given them that land. 
Second thing they tell her, assemble your house. Anyone found outside the house would be killed. And that makes sense. They don't, they're not gonna be able to tell who's related to Rahab if they're just slaughtering people on the streets. So they needed to be in the house. And then third, Rahab was, again, to keep the spies' business a secret and not tell anyone. And so she agrees to all of this and preemptively puts that cord in the window. And finally, the nation of Israel gets a good report. Verses 22 through 24, they departed. They went to the mountain. They stayed there three days until the pursuers returned, just like Rahab said they would. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So then the two men returned, descended from the mountain, crossed over, and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. Again, they swam over the Jordan River again at flood stage, another heroic feat. And then verse 24, they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. You know, what a great testimony and end of the story. And, and you see God's hand in all of this, giving these Israelite spies, spies enough truth and confirmation to believe what he had already told them. And then they bring the good report back to Joshua. We see this, this hill country. It's a, an area west of Jericho. It had caves. It's still got caves, isolated canyons, 1,500 foot high limestone cliffs. So it was really easy place to, to hide. Lots of places to hide. So it was a good recommendation by Rahab and kept these spies safe. And they followed her instruction. They, they knew that they would maybe only stay out three days, but then they made their journey home and swam across the Jordan River. And again, they had good report to bring to Joshua. And finally, they had some good news. And we see in chapter three, if we were to keep going, now they're going to cross the Jordan. They're going to go into Jericho and start this conquest of the land that God had given them. And you know, there's some good application points for us today. I just want to make a couple. And that is this, be quick in your life to respond by faith to the Lord. Just be quick to uh, proverbially take the Lord's side, even against your own ingenuity, your own strategy, your own ideas. Just be quick to respond by faith to the Lord, his word, his principles, and stop so often, which we do, we trust in ourselves. We, we don't trust the word of God. We trust ourselves. We start to try to hedge protection around us from all the potential bad circumstances or negative reactions for people. And we need to just start trusting the Lord. Be quick to respond by faith to the Lord in your daily life. Another application point, don't overcomplicate faith. Don't be a person who's trusting in your faith. Don't ever get so off kilter that you're now trusting in your ability to believe, trust or rest in the faithful one. I love that old quote by J. Hudson Taylor that he got from a friend of his. We don't increase in faith by striving after faith. We do it by resting in the faithful one. Always remember that your faith is really not the most important thing in the equation. It's the object of your faith. Occupy yourself with the object of your faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, his word, his character, and then begin to rest in him. That's what faith is all about. It's not having faith in your faith or trusting in your faith or I got big faith, I got great faith. I've got, who cares? How great is your object? How great is the person whom you're trusting in? That's what you need to occupy yourself with. Don't overcomplicate faith. It's all about resting in the faithful one. And then finally, one more application point. As you sit here this morning, 
The truth of the matter is you are already trusting in something or someone. In fact, many of us are trusting in ourselves. That's the default mode. Many of us default to trusting in ourselves. You know, many of us are already walking by faith, but what we need is a change of object. I go back to Proverbs 3, 5, which is a great closing verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We, we need to be reminded of that truth over and over and over again because each day you're walking by faith. You're either trusting in yourself or someone else or you're trusting in the Lord and him alone. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning, just this encouragement to trust you, to rely upon you as the object of our faith, the only object worth trusting in, the only person worth trusting in, your word being the only trustworthy truth to trust in. And and Lord, we just, we want to do that more consistently. We want to enjoy the good that you've got designed for us because we know that if we'll simply trust you, Lord, you're not going to lead us into sin even if we are led into trials or different heartaches, that you will be there holding our hand through it all and that you have only our good in mind in the sense of growing us spiritually and enjoying the fellowship that we're designed to have with you. Convince us of this truth, Lord. Encourage us this week. Remind us of how great you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.